Before we continue, one of the ways we keep all of our content for you, the listener, free of charge is our amazing sponsors, and today, Anchor is one of those sponsors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcasts right from your phone or computer. Anchor is going to distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are listened to, and you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Today on a special Marvel TV Weekly, I'm joined for the whole show by the great Chris Claremont, best known for his legendary 17-year run on Uncanny X-Men, among others. But today we're primarily discussing Carol Danvers, who the world now knows as Captain Marvel. Marvel TV Weekly starts now! You're tuned in to AfterBuzz TV, the ESPN of TV talk. Now, let the buzz Yes, indeed. Welcome to, as I said, a very special Marvel TV Weekly, a Tuesday afternoon Marvel TV Weekly. Uh, as I said in the intro, joined for the entire show by the great Chris Claremont. And uh, I've talked to him a few times over the years about predominantly about Uncanny X-Men. But as I said, uh, I, I'd really like to spend some time talking about Carol Danvers because uh, there's so much new interest in her. Uh, Chris, first of all, welcome to the show and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Well, the pleasure is mine. Thank uh, you for the invite. Yeah. So since we're uh, starting with Carol, I wanted to uh, start off and uh, get some of your thoughts on her big screen debut in Captain Marvel. I thought it was a lot of fun. I think uh, Brie Larson looked great. Um, I'm curious to see what happens next. Since give, referring to the after credits sequence. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I saw uh, you You had some interesting thoughts that you uh, shared on Facebook after you saw it, which was it presented a lot of questions for you. And I was like, oh, yeah. So she's this, you know, supremely powerful being. And it's not a secret that Thanos is trying to collect these Infinity Stones. So even if, OK, she's really busy trying to find the Squirrels of Homeworld, somebody ought to say, hey, you might want to look at this guy, Thanos. Was that the gist of what you were wondering? Or did I simplify it too much? I think... Part of the questions revolve around the fact it's been a quarter century. Uh, she apparently is has a resistance to traditional aging. Uh, I don't know what, how long it took her to find the scrolls of a, a home world, or how how much opposition she had to deal with along the way. Uh, whether she moved faster than light, the scrolls don't, or vice versa. Um, it was it just left the same kind of curiosity one might find reading a really good intro setup issue of a comic. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it, yeah, it is, is, you know, it's been a little while since we've had one of those uh, introductory films. I mean, because Black Panther, we got to meet in Civil War. So we already had a little familiarity. So, uh, and yeah, the conceit of it being uh, in the nineties, I guess that's a part of their, their bigger plan. So, uh, you know, apart from, I guess, picking some fun nineties pop tunes, I'm not quite sure why it had to be then, but, uh, I thought, uh, I, like you said, I thought it was really fun. And uh, I wanted to speak to you a little bit about the the Kree Skrull War. Now, uh, Roy Thomas, who is uh, responsible for creating Carol while he was writing Captain Marvel, uh, he didn't really like this idea. Did you? Were you uh, surprised by the twist that hey, these Skrulls are actually not so bad? And what did you think of it? Uh, in ter- you know, considering what the the way that we've known the Skrulls from comics for so many years. 
Well, I basically consider film reality totally different from comics reality. Uh, whatever Kevin Feige had in mind for uh, as a concept and an execution for Captain Marvel, the film, pulled from a lot of comic book sources in terms of her appearance, in terms of of the natures of her power, in terms of her origin. Uh, you could you could have a, a whole hour on just disputations about what was taken, what was left behind, what was used, what was not used. That's a decision every producer makes when he or she comes to to bringing an adapted uh, story to the screen. I think the only the only real times you you'll get a a huge measure of of solidarity to the written work is when you're J.K. Rowling or George R.R. R. Martin, and you actually have active, ongoing control of the film product. In this case, it's Kevin's product, his project, his basic creation, and he's pulling, or the the, the direct writing and directing team on Captain Marvel were pulling from her entire history. So some things came into the film from Captain Marvel, some things came into the film from Ms. Marvel, some things came into the film from the X-Men via binary. You just do it. Yeah, I thought that uh, the uh, the power levels that uh, she had were, to me at least, uh, more reminiscent of binary than certainly Ms. Marvel, you know, who uh, obviously was had cosmic powers, but it it wasn't the level of I'm going to take out an entire you know Cree battalion of warheads. Well, I never really thought of Ms. Marvel as having cosmic powers. I just thought she was a, a, an extremely tough and capable superhero uh who could stand with the avengers sure uh, but that that led to a series of stories that i did that had nothing you know that were the antithesis of what we saw on the screen yeah uh speaking of the difference between film reality and uh comic reality uh do you feel like it in any way did a, a disservice to the Marvel character, not that he was played by a wonderful actress like Annette Benning, but instead that it, it just happens to be a scientist and not this, you know, costume superhero like we are familiar with the character. To me, I was just like, well, it could have kind of been anybody. Uh, well, you have to go back to the original concept and it being, I guess, the 60s, Marvel was a guy. That's the, fundament, the sure. fundamental starting point. Uh, no, I mean, that's. You adapt to you adapt to a new reality. I mean, to be quite honest, no supreme intelligence that I ever worked with uh, had an artist draw and I wrote ever looked like Annette Benning. So, you know, the times they are a changing. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the supreme intelligence just always sort of the big green giant face on a on a screen. You know, I and think. Not, uh, also, forgive me for interrupting. Not even a human face. Humanoid, right. perhaps, but not human. No. So, yeah. Again, you adapt basically covering it by the, the the justification that's used in the film. I adapt my visual persona to the person I'm talking to. So um Marva uh sorry, Carol has one vision, but uh, 
Oh. <sighs> What's his face from Dr. Watson? I, sorry. Jude? Oh, Jude Law, yes. Yeah, has a totally different one, which he describes, but you don't see. Yes. So um, they, they covered that, I think, quite appropriately for the film. But again, it's, you're dealing with transferring material from one medium to another and from one era to another. Bear in mind, the Captain Marvel, the Ms. Marvel stories we're referring to date from, God help us, the 80s, the early 80s. So we're talking 35 years. Um, the world, the filmmaking world, the social world, the perceptive world has changed remarkably and markedly in those 35 plus years. Um, had this film been made in 1990 or even 2000, it would have been a totally different, I suspect, a totally different approach to the storytelling and, and the characterization. Uh, I saw actually one newspaper article that was contrasting the presentation of Ms. Marvel today with Jane Fonda doing Barbarella back in the day. <laughs> and so it's, you know, the times change, the, the people change, the films change to to fit the, the society that, that they're, they're reaching out to. Again, to use a, another paradigm, the Wonder Woman... And the Paradise Island we saw in Wonder Woman is nothing like what one could imagine back in the TV series days. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, one of the nice little surprises uh, for the film was the inclusion of a young Monica Rambeau, who for me, that was Captain Marvel when I was reading. So uh, I, I thought it was sort of a fun little Easter egg with the idea of like, yeah, we're going to be 20 years in the future, so we'll probably see her. Uh, did you uh, did you think that was a nice touch? Well, the the challenge I have is that Monica Rambeau came along long after I had left, and uh, I mean my connection with with Carol Danvers pretty much ceased. Uh, well, back in '91 when right, I left sure. the first time, I was more intrigued from a gotcha standpoint by the remarkably vital and and really cool Nick Fury. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, the only time one saw any evidence that the Nick Fury on screen was not, was far younger and more vital than the Nick Fury we're used to seeing in Avengers was when he and Carol were running down the hall. And you suddenly thought, hmm, okay, that's perhaps <laughs> not the way that Samuel Jackson would have done it, you know, back in the Pulp Fiction age. But... The, the thing I liked, I was incredibly impressed by, was what seemed to be so much fun he was having with the character. Yeah, as as great as it was to you know watch her blow stuff up and you know the fight scenes and all that, just from an, a, a legitimate enjoying enjoyment standpoint, the scenes of them just driving around in the car, I'm like, well, this is what I like most about the movie. That was the most fun for me. You know, if well, they, character. yeah. Right, exactly. I thought that was great character work. If if uh, you know they just went on a road trip and uh, didn't even run into any scrolls, I probably would have still liked that. Maybe not quite as much. Well, uh, the other the other gotcha moment that I appreciated was the fact that Fury got the the idea for his initiative from the tag name on her aircraft. 
Yeah, I thought uh, I thought that was nice, and I, I like the uh, the explanation of of his eye, which uh, you know is you know like anything, it, it's a very divisive topic on the uh, the internet. But uh, I thought it's funny, you know, and uh, of course he's not going to tell anybody what really happened. Uh, so. Yeah, I think that uh, I think it did a good job of uh, introducing this character, and uh, yes, we'll we'll see how she plays well with others uh, in Endgame, based on the the little uh, scene that we saw in the mid credits, and the, there's a very brief instant of her in the latest Endgame trailer. So uh, we we don't have long to wait for all that. Well, I, I find the one my one quibble with all of that was the shot of her in the Endgame credit in the end game tag with Thor, it was like, I'm not, I, a, how much time has passed since she first shows up and says, where's Nick Fury. Right. And her showing up to meet Thor. Um, I, I think I prefer uh, her 1990 hairstyle to, I guess this is the 2020 hairstyle. <laughs> yes. I think you're right. <laughs> before she looked kind of spunky and cool and kick-ass. And now to my, I, I, I assume, jaded, mature eye, it wasn't as much fun seeing, you know, seeing her with Thor. It was like, okay, she, she's a grown-up, but I liked her better as a, as a kick-ass fighter jock. Or yeah. I guess jock is the accurate nomenclature anymore, but there you go. No, yeah, but uh, I don't know. I think uh, in this day and age, jock is uh, not a uh, gender-specific term anymore, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Well, that's a good cover. I don't know how many people will buy it, but there you go. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, one of the main reasons why I had the thought to see if you'd be interested in talking about Carol is because just for me for a long time, you know, I saw you, uh, you know, reading these comics a little bit after they were published, I saw you as somebody who looked out for Carol Danvers at a point where I don't think she was treated very well. Uh, and uh, we'll talk in a little bit about uh, Avengers Annual Number Ten, but I, I'm kind of interested in how you ended up writing uh, the the Ms. Marvel uh, solo book after just a couple issues. Jerry Conway started, and by my account, you were doing at least Iron Fist, Marvel Team Up, and of course, Uncanny X Men. And I'm sure I'm missing something. Mm-hmm. So you, you had a you had a, a, a lot of plates in the air, you know, like the old plate spinners on Ed Sullivan. Well, bluntly. There were no after-publication payments of any kind. Mm-hmm. What you got was was based on your page rate, and in those days, my page rate wasn't that great. So you basically earned your living by grabbing as many titles as, as were possible. And in my case, um, it seemed like a cool character, and Jer- when Jerry gave up the book, I was in the right place at the right time. Um, And the weird thing about it was over the 15 or so issues that we lasted after that, it, it turned into how can we make this better as a printed project as much as how can we do really cool stories? And that, that eventually evolved into Dave Cockrum coming in and redesigning the initial costume. uh, So she would look, unique, visually unique, and utterly cool, which, again, by the standards of the late 70s, early 80s, she did. Uh, The problem for me was that Jim Starlin, in in designing that Captain Marvel costume for the male Captain Marvel, the original Captain Marvel, it was a brilliant piece of 
of character design. I mean, you looked at the way Jim drew the physical form of Marvel, and then you looked at the way he costumed it, and it was a paradigm. Um, it just totally accentuated all the proper elements of male, of idealized male physiognomy. I mean, broad shoulders, narrow hips, and uh, this brilliant isosceles triangle straight down to the crotch, for better or sure. worse. And it all worked. The problem is when you take that same design as they did and plaster it on Carol, the female, female physiognomy doesn't work like that. You know, it, it was it's a nice arrow down to the waist, and then suddenly the body takes a U-turn and heads out. And so what we ended up with, in terms of Carol, to my eye anyway, was a color swath across the shoulders that instantly slammed everybody's eyes to her chest, and then a bikini bottom at, at the other end that basically emphasized her hips. So there was no ideal, comfortable way of looking at her. And then she had these two, you know, bare stomach, bare back, and, and these two connecting bands down her side, which might have seemed appropriate in concept, but turned out to be absolute hell to draw. I mean, if one were a John Buscema, one could find a way to do it, but most of the artists who worked on Carol over the subsequent issues weren't. And we were always in an, a situation where, in one example, we tell an artist, she has to look more, for want of a better term, sexy. But his vision of sexy derived from the 1950s and early 60s. So she, we, had, we would have shots where she looked like something straight out of not even Playboy. Right. And it just was entirely inappropriate for what we were trying to do with the character. Um, you know, Carmine Infantino did it brilliantly towards the end of the run, and then Dave came in and knocked it out of the ballpark. But it's, it's a matter of finding, again, it's looking at Peter Parker as Spider-Man, and you can't get better than that. It, it, it epitomizes all the elements one would look for in a superhero who is related to spiders and a kid, and it grew with him, but it was just, it, it always, it was then and is now the, the ideal costume for that character. And our, uh, Dave's and my goal through, through our working together, both directly on Ms. Marvel, but then just coming to him and say, have you got any great visual ideas, was to give her something as equally iconic, something, and better yet, something that was totally primally unique to her. You couldn't look at it and say, well, like she used to be Captain Marvel or she used to be connected with Captain Marvel, which is why we, Dave and I eventually brought her to binary in the X-Men because it was my way as a writer of divorcing her from all the baggage, in a sense, that had, that had followed her ever since her first appearance as head of security at Cape Canaveral or Kate Kennedy, rather, um, it, it made her unique, both visually unique, conceptually unique. It gave her what she wanted as a character, which is the ability to fly in space better than anyone. And, and she looked really cool. 
I mean, the thing, sorry, but the thing with Carol, what everyone sort of skips as they look through the canon is it's specifically stated in the first issue. She's security chief of the, of Cape Kennedy or the Kennedy space center at Cape Canaveral. This is not a minor league job. And she had a history in air force intelligence. So one has to figure, okay, she's, she's identified as a major when she first came in. That's not a kid. We're talking about someone in their thirties. So how you present them to the audience has to be factored, at least in my head, through that prism. She's a person of maturity in her craft and also in her actual age. She's not going to run around in, you know, in hip huggers, or at least the grown-up hip huggers and not teenage hip huggers. She won't react to things the way Peter Parker did when he was in high school. And the look of the character and the kind of ways we approach the story have to reflect that. Yeah, I always found that the the visual of the original design, you know, obviously she's identified as Ms. Marvel because that was a very empowering term in the 70s. And, uh, you know, obviously it, it stands out, I guess, on on the rack. But then, yeah, the fact that it was such a skimpy version of Marvel's costume, I think that they did a better job. Uh, whoever designed the Jessica Drew Spider Woman costume, she didn't really look like Spider Man. She certainly looked like a Spider character, but it was not like we're going to take Spider Man's costume and and change it just a little bit. Yeah, uh, no, so, so go ahead. Sorry. No, sorry. Uh, forgive me for interrupting. Yes, that worked and worked really well. Uh, and so the the redesigned costume that Dave Cockrum did, I think, is great, and uh, you'll still see it at, you know, maybe you see it at conventions. People will cosplay that costume. They like. I know that there's a there's a current Ms. Marvel uh, character, uh, Kamala Khan, and her costume is very similar to that one. But I think people just always gravitated towards that costume, and yeah, it's it is a lot more practical for fighting and yes, being in in space or anything really than. Uh, you know, the, the original one. Uh, so her book ends uh, very abruptly. And I think fans of the character might have initially been excited at the idea of like, well, she's going to be the in the Avengers now. But uh, for me, she never really meshed well with the Avengers. I felt like there were issues where she was involved in fight scenes, but didn't have any dialogue. And you wonder, do they remember she's on the team? And, you know, that's that's somewhat tongue in cheek, but it felt that way to me when I was uh, I was reading some of these. Uh, whereas like a character like She-Hulk, I felt fit in well in both the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. Do you have a feeling why Carol might not have fit in with the Avengers? And maybe it's just the Avengers at that time. Well, I think that's a question you have to direct to the, the writer of the Avengers. I mean, David Michelini or whoever else sure. was working on it. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, my one contribution to that ethos, to that timeline was a primal response to a primal provocation. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, I gathered after that was done, I gathered her into the X-Men because no, no one else wanted to use her or was willing to use her. And I, I didn't want to see the good work of event of, of annual 10 go to waste or what I considered go to waste. So I hauled her into the X canon. Um, but 
in terms of how she's handled in the Avengers, both before uh, uh, 200 and Annual 10 and after when she returned, right. I guess, as war something or other. Warbird, yeah. That's, that's, a little, that's a little after my time, but uh, yeah. Yeah, too. And Captain Marvel, <laughs> or Ms. Marvel, sorry. Yes. Um, that's something to, to go to, I guess, Tom Revolt or the, the specific writers on the series. Yeah. Well, you, you alluded to it, and I, I want to explain for our audience that maybe isn't as particularly uh, up to speed on this. The way Carol was written out of the book in Avengers number 200, it... Can, Sorry. It sounds like a tea kettle. Uh, but uh, the way that Carol was written out of the book in Avengers 200, to me, can only be uh, characterized as a travesty. And there's a well-known piece that Carol Strickland wrote at the time was accurately called The Rape of Ms. Marvel. And mm -hmm. just to give the sort of quick summary for people watching, the Avengers <laughs> essentially let Carol go off with this guy named Marcus who says he's Immortus's son. He specifically stated he used some of his father's machinery to make her fall in love with him. But everybody's like, okay, well, have fun. Nice knowing you, Carol. And well, you really have to go back to the very beginning, which is that Carol wakes up one morning and discovers she's three months pregnant. Correct, yeah. And everyone's going, oh, that's lovely. Who's the father? What are you talking about? I went to bed normal. Yeah, right, and yeah. And then the, they realize something's up when the pregnancy increases exponentially over the next 48, 72 hours. And then within three or four days, she gives birth to, um, I guess, uh, Marcus is the character's Mar name. Marcus, yeah. um, who in turn grows to adulthood in a matter of days. Yes. Uh, and announces that, well, I'm a being from another dimension, yada, yada. I came to plight my troth to Carol and, Everyone takes it at face value, including Carol. And in the end, they 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 wish them all Godspeed. Have a lovely life. You're happily, you know, you're going off with the man you love. See you later. And off she goes. Yeah, and it's it's not just you know the fellas are like, oh hey, good for you know uh, Janet the Wasp and Wanda the Scarlet Witch. They're there too, and they're like, mm -hmm. hey, this is great for you. You know, I I think that. Uh, Everyone, it, it's not just the male characters that, uh, you know, uh, handle it uh, poorly. And so that inspires uh, Avengers Annual number 10. Uh, in terms of Avengers 200, obviously you didn't write that book. Uh, no. And no one seems to want to take credit for actually writing that book. And I know this is like 40 years ago. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Because Jim Shooter very specifically says he didn't write it. He says he'll take the blame. But in 2011, he said... Uh, ask David Michelini or you, and I, I don't understand why one would ask you because you you were not a writer on the Avengers. Um, I think from what David has said at conventions, that was a book with a, an issue that involved a lot of disputation between writer and writer and editor and editor in chief. That David was not happy with it. Um, it just it was one of those things where I suspect it's issue 200. We have to have a major event. It seemed like a great idea perhaps when they started, but the deeper it got into the story, uh, the more unresolvable conflicts came to life. But the problem was you, George had to start drawing it. George Perez had to start drawing it and they ran into the deadline. And sometimes Stories that you wish had been issue 217 
and could be forgotten a month later. Sure. Turn it to issue 200 and you've got to live with it. Um, the, the problem, I think, from Marvel's perspective is another writer who was considered himself, well, we won't go into that, but the other writer's head exploded and they, and he wanted the opportunity to, for want of a better term, set things right. And Jim, to his credit, let me go with that. Tom, to his credit, uh, accepted the story that I turned in. And I had, to my credit, I got the chance to work for 34 plus pages with Michael Golden. Right. The you joke of the story, if you can consider anything a joke, is the first 28 pages where you've got the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which is an incredibly stupid name in and of itself. <laughs> but uh, uh, but that's a Stan and Jack term, so you know even yeah, by 1980 you still had to use it. Yeah, yeah. But you had Mystique, and and this is the introduction of Rogue, right? Basically kicking the Avengers' ass up, down, and sideways for a bunch of pages until the Avengers figured out how to win. That's the that's the prologue. The actual story, as Jim Shooter gleefully says every so often, doesn't begin until page 38 where you have the X-Men mansion as the Quinjet lands and Carol waiting for her confrontation with her friends. And Michael did breathtakingly good art, character art for those, that handful of pages. Um, and it, for me, that that's the whole story right there. It's, it's Carol going up to, people she thought were her friends and her teammates. And bear in mind, she's Air Force. The, your team, your squadron, your wing person, those are the, you, the people you depend on for your life. You don't let them down. You don't, they don't let you down. To put it in film terms, Monica Rambeau's mom was her wingman, wing person. Sure, yeah. They were cool. They, they covered each other's back. Even th that's one of the things when Carol comes back in the middle of the film and she meets, um, what was, what was her mom's name? Uh, Maria. Maria. When yeah. she meets Maria Rambeau, it's like, Maria's like, what happened? We looked all over. We, we, you know, and Carol's going, I don't remember you. And it's, it's, it's really a nice emotional punch moment of the story because You've got these two people who are buds in the best sense of the term. They depend on each other for their lives as pilots, as as test pilots, as what one could think looking ahead five or eight years, fighter pilots. And that that got run over. The concept got it run over. And in the sense, in that sense, Carol would, had the same relationship ideally with the rest of the Avengers, and nobody covered her back. And this is her calling them on it. And from my perspective, leaving them at the point where they had to deal with that. And while, you know, for, for someone like Captain Marvel, that's a reality that matters. He went through war. He had people watching his back fighting when he was fighting, well, first the Nazis, then, then uh, Hydra. They depended on him. He depended on them. The, the heartbreak of the comic Captain Marvel, ca sorry, Captain America, 
is he couldn't save Bucky. Yeah. Bucky died. Um, it's, you know, it, these are, these are relevant characterizational moments that I, I thought needed to be presented. The guy, the heroes needed to be called on it as a learning process, I guess. But it's something I hoped that the readers could relate to as well. Uh, knowing that I was going to talk to you today, I actually reread Avengers Annual Number Ten yesterday for the first time in in years. I couldn't even tell you the last time I read it. And first of all, you're absolutely right. Michael Golden's artwork is is stunning, uh, and I always remembered that it was an important sort of resolution of that. But uh, in addition to the Carol's basically. Uh, indictment that her mistake was in trusting the Avengers. She says something uh, profound, which uh, I'll quote uh, back to you and to the audience. Uh, and Carol says to them very specifically, she says, there has to be more to being heroes than simply defeating villains. You have a role, a purpose far greater than yourselves. You have to set examples, lead the way. You mm-hmm. represent what we should be, what we dream of becoming, not what we are. So, and she also says, hopefully you can learn with it. And at you as a storyteller of these superpowered characters, uh, how much more interesting is it for you when people that claim to be Earth's mightiest heroes or uncanny or amazing or whatever, they do actually hold themselves up to the kind of standard that Carol's talking about there? Well, bear in mind that the line that defined, I guess, the the Marvel ethic for me was with great power comes great responsibility. Right. It's a cliche now because we've been listening to people say it and wank on it for a good long time. But it, it's a very, it, it, you know, Sam, Sam, Stan epitomized the whole concept in what? Seven words. Yeah. With great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. Um, the challenge is learning the definition of the word responsibility. How do we how do we hold what what are the terms under which we hold ourselves accountable? Um, what are the, what limits are we prepared to go to? What I mean, Carol in the movie discovers that all the the foundations of her life that she believed were of her life in the Cree were false. And the people she thought of were villains, the Skrulls, were just fugitives, refugees. They're trying to get to a better place just so they can live. She has to make a choice. Um, The intriguing thing that came to my mind at the end of the film was, does she still have blue blood or is she back to normal? Or, you know, they, they pulled out all of her blood and replaced it with Kree blood. But I'm thinking, hang on, that... You, one would think that would have an interesting effect on the rest of her circulatory system. <laughs> Very it, true. You know, but that's that's far too up the uh, the technical yeah. advice line from my pay grade. I think when the movie clocks into two hours and five minutes, you, you don't think like, "Hey, let's uh, let's figure out uh, what we how we explain her blood and all that." But it is a fascinating question, and I I don't know. Well, I, I would like a, I would like a firm answer on it. Sorry, what was that? It might be explained down the road. Yes, I, I would hope that there. there's a lot of things that, you know, we get just like a, a few second glimpse of, of her father and, we don't, you know, they don't deal with any of her family at all, basically. Uh, so, uh, well, and, see, sorry, 
for interrupting. No, no problem. The other thing you have to bear, one has to bear in mind looking at Captain Marvel is that the series was written in the 70s. So the attitude of her father to, you know, Carol, why do I send, you know, we only have enough money for to send one, to, to help one kid go to college. I mean, and Carol actually starts out by saying, I've earned half of what I need to get in the door. I need the other half. Right. Um, and bear in mind, in those days, we're talking like three grand, <laughs> right. 60 grand. Yeah. And he says, why forgive, you know, he doesn't even say forgive me, he says, Carol, you're a girl. Why would I spend money to send you to university, to college when all you're going to do is meet some nice guy, get married, have babies and live happily ever after? I'm going to send your brother to college because he'll make something of himself. And of course, the irony is her brother went to Vietnam and didn't come back. He's on the wall. Right. Yeah. So it's like that's but that was the attitude in those days. The guys went out and had the families, had the jobs, built the world, and the women stayed home and and took care of everything else. Fast forward to to 2018 when they were putting this together and filming it, the the whole framework of society and characters and attitudes and responsibilities has has changed beyond 100%. I mean, at, at this point in time, you have women flying active fighter roles off of carriers. You have women in command and control roles, both in all the armed services. You can't, the paradigm has changed, hopefully beyond correction, and the film has to reflect that. I mean, I it as the person who wrote those scenes, I can argue that I'm irked that none of that got included in the film. But from a from a social standpoint, from an analy analytic standpoint, this is where you have one has to step back and say, well, it's been 40 years. Times have changed, right. and the film has to reflect that. I mean. I think they were taking enough of a risk going back to the mid nineties because I was expecting to see like a news broadcast in the background talking about, um, apocalypse destroying half the world and the X-Men fighting for their lives, you know, fighting to stop it. But right. that's just me being a brat. <laughs> um, no, I mean that you just, you know, I mean, I suppose the one, my one dream, deep down in my heart of hearts, dream moment, wish fulfillment is since I think next week is supposedly Knockwood, the the final the final conclusion of the the, the Disney, Disney Fox, Fox merger, merger. yeah. <laughs> the return of two of two wandering uh, concepts to their original home. I kept waiting, you know, you, you run the credits of, of Avengers and you finally get to the end. They've, they've done the, the final trailer of all the film companies that were in on this and suddenly the screen goes black and you start hearing a phone ring and it keeps ringing and ringing and ringing. The camera 
opens up and you see you're on you're in a high rise you're looking out the windows and the background is boston and the phone's in the center and it's still ringing and carol walks into the scene and picks up the phone and you hear patrick stewart going carol (laughs) and she looks at the phone goes charles and then she looks straight out at the camera and just grins and we go to black yeah, it'll be. It will, that that would go up there with uh, the cat burfing up the uh, <laughs> the tesseract. Yeah, yeah, and it'll be it'll be interesting to see how they uh, incorporate you know those properties back in. I, I'm I'm still waiting for my great Fantastic Four movie that we haven't gotten just yet. But uh, uh, obviously, having those characters and the X Men back, you know, under the big tent. Uh, as it were, uh, will be good. One final thing. I want to talk about a couple other things, but one final thing about Carol is, you know, you mentioned this reintroduction of her as binary, and that was really, you know, her sort of being her own character and different from all that. Every And, and I, unless I'm mistaken, you, uh, when you left Marvel in 91, she was still binary, and you would, mm-hmm. she'd occasionally still showed up, and mm-hmm. so then everything happened was was after the fact, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I find I find it intriguing that the Carol I wrote, the Ms. Marvel I wrote, she was strong and she was tough, but she didn't fly faster than light. Right. I mean, a lot of the uh, the the visual, visually exciting and dynamic powers that the cinematic Captain Marvel ex- uh, exemplifies, to my eye prejudice that it is clearly are derived from binary which i you know that's that's their prerogative it's it's marvel it's marvel stuff and a marvel character and it it's definitely appropriate to captain marvel or to carol rather sure so um we'll see what happens next it's it it is totally cool and i like the idea that they're billing her as the most significantly powerful character in the Marvel universe that we're aware of. Um, I guess from my, my side of the the desk, I'm in, I'm curious to see what's, what happens next. I mean, the question I rose, I posed on Facebook was Galactus is going all through the galaxy, committing all manner of atrocities, wiping out half of everybody Convenient that Carol was on the right side of the half and not the uh, T'Challa side. <laughs> right. But it's like, how come nobody noticed? You know, I mean, you've got all these sort of cosmically aware characters, Carol being one of them. How come he was operating below their radar? Um, you know, but that's that's, again... When one is raised in Stan, Stan continuity, where you have to, you have, where the company was small enough, the, the amount of books contained enough that you could literally keep all of the general story ideas in your head as you're writing your own stuff. It's now expanded exponentially, and uh, you just have to keep your fingers crossed. And okay, they'll figure it out down the line, or either that, or it will be a huge uh, mutual uh, discussion forum on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. 
Right. Uh, well, uh, speaking of writing stories, one thing I wanted to talk about uh, is that uh, you have something coming up for Marvel in May, which will be a, a Nightcrawler story in Marvel Comics Presents set during uh, the epic Cross Time Caper, which I enjoyed in the pages of Excalibur. Uh, what can you tell us about this story? Well, oddly enough, at the very same time, uh, the Berlin Wall was having problems, let us say. So this is Nightcrawler in Berlin, uh, the week, the day the, the wall fell. And uh, you'd be amazed at what we can fit into 10 pages. Yeah. And actually, looking a little further down the road, uh, I got to t- uh, had the delight, the absolute delight of teaming up with Salvador, Salvador, Salvador La Roca <laughs> again. For the first time, I guess, since um, pretty much since Extreme, on a 10 pager involving Kitty and uh, Logan, which is sort of a an add on postscript, except it's mid story, to the Kitty Wolverine miniseries. So we're in Japan, and it's a story involving Wolverine, which I like to think shows a side of Wolverine no one has ever seen before if they've even imagined it. So that ought to be fun. No, that'll definitely be fun. I, I was a, a, a huge fan of uh, that series, the six-issue Kitty Pride and Wolverine series. Uh, obviously, the Wolverine Frank Miller series everybody talks about, and not that it isn't, of course, great, but that was always just – I really liked that story. So the idea that it'll sort of revisit that, uh, I'm excited. Uh, you know, the, the last time I talked to you, speaking of Kitty, uh, you were very clear about the fact that you didn't like the idea of Kitty and Colossus getting married. Well, apparently, Kitty agreed with you, and uh, do you feel like that's better for both of those characters, that they weren't sort of you know forced together and then that kind of – I don't know, I guess future writers – have to sort of deal with them now actually being married? I think the problem with marriage in comic books is partly the passage of real time as opposed to comic book time, but mostly it's a commitment. It's a life commitment. And there, none of the marriages I've seen have worked other than Reed and Sue. I mean, to have Spider-Man cut a deal sort of, with Mephisto. Oh, yeah. This marriage with... with Mary uh, Jane. Mary Jane to have Scott dump Madeline and his child to go back to Gene? To have Gene and the others put up, accept that? It's like, yeah. come on. You guys are supposed to, again, you're supposed to stand for something. And, you know, this is, this is not the way you want your heroes to act. Um... It just, it always never, I mean, the, the Pims broke up. Um, the problem is you get five, six, eight, ten years down the line, you realize there are, there are stories we can't do because the character's married. Right. And there are directions we can't go that you would expect out of a married couple, i.e. children, that were not, that, that are inappropriate in the active World, we take all the dramatic, romantic drama and suspense out of a series, and it just, it for me, it it doesn't it doesn't comfortably work. I mean, I gather now that Superman is married to Lois. Yes, I don't I don't know where that's going to go. Batman 
failed to get married to uh, the to uh, Catwoman, but you know it's it just cuts off options. Yeah, and I think it's if you notice, like in NCIS, Gibbs never has a lasting relationship. Even when he likes the lady, the lady likes him. It never goes anywhere because basically he's his commitment is to his dead wife and and uh, daughter. But it's it's the same para- paradigm in comics in any continued series. If you're if you make a change like that, you can't take it back. Right. And, yeah. And, and, yeah. And I see. I think that that's the reason why, as convoluted as that Mephisto storyline was, they were just like Spider-Man works best, you know, when he's if he's not a kid age anymore, if he's sort of you know unfettered in that way. So I, yeah, I, I understand that standpoint. We only have a few more minutes. Uh, so I wanted to just very quickly say that it was actually a lot of fun to see you turn up on an episode of the gifted in the form of, uh, as someone who had a website and you knew all about the, uh, the Morlocks, uh, you're one of those conspiracy people. Um, have you seen much of that show and, uh, what do you think of it? I haven't seen much of that show. And so I really, sure. I'm not in a position to make any, any judgments. Uh, it's just, it, it's hard to keep track of stuff that's on TV. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when I'm working. And uh, so I'm hoping at some point someone in the studio might send me a DVD set so I could actually watch it, but we'll see. The one thing I, I will say, going back to Carol for a minute, what I hope they haven't, they won't forget in terms of presenting her on screen is it being a Zoomie, being Air Force, and starting out, in her case, I don't know if they do it in the film, but as enlisted, she plays a wicked game of poker. I mean, in in the comic, in my comic vision of her, she's as good as Nick Fury, and that's as good as it gets. And she, the best thing about playing poker is her and Nick going one on one, and seeing who's going to win. So, one of the things I always liked about Carol was she was a demon poker player, and I hope we see that in in movie scenes to come. Yes, it's uh, something that I, I remember her uh, referencing a lot. Uh, and, you know, finally, uh, before we wrap up, I, I feel like I, I need to talk to you about Dark Phoenix, uh, which uh, I'll always say that uh, that story to me is the best comic book story of all time, at least that I've read. And I want a film that uh, does it justice. Are you able to enjoy a film like that? Or is it almost like Protective Services takes a child away and then you check in on it when it's like 15 years old to see how it's doing? No, I thought Days of Future Past. Sorry. I thought Days of Future Past was a hell of a lot of fun. Yes. I mean, for me, the only the only problem with Days of Future Past is what I would have done at the end is Logan comes over and there's Famke Janssen and there's um, Scott. And the next line is, oh, and this is our daughter, Rachel. And that's where Sophie Turner comes out. And then you bring in Apocalypse as not ni- not 1980-something, yeah. but 2016 or 2017. And then you do Days of Future Past as 2020. And that's, as we hope people would notice by then, that's the Westchester incident that's referred to all the way through old man Logan. Well, right. through Logan. But to me, it's when you're going to embrace a story, the challenge I've always faced with the way that 
that Brian and the others approached post uh, Days of Future Past films is why do I want to watch a film that's set in 1980 or 1993? Because I saw the last scenes of Days of Future Past. I know everyone's alive in 2017. Right. So where's the suspense? Um, but that's, you know, that's the challenge I assume Simon will embrace and, and make us all go, wow, he's really good when we see the finished product. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's in June. Yes. Well, I, I hope that uh, I'll be able to chat with you after you've seen it. And, uh, you know, I'm excited about this new Mutants movie, if it ever happens, if it actually comes out. I love those characters. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I, so if for some reason this isn't the movie and, and they, you know, it gets short shrift because of the merger, uh, I hope that we get a great new mutant story at some point. I think the challenge is a lot more primal than the merger. I think the challenge for, for uh, Dark Phoenix is will Avengers leave any money left in the world for people to go to the movies after that? <laughs> I think that's uh, definitely the problem. Well, uh, Chris, I always appreciate you being so generous with your time. And uh, people can, uh, you know, to get in touch with you and uh, see what you're up to, appearances you might have, just go to chrisclaremont.com. And, uh, and you know, you mentioned a couple of things that are coming up. But uh, this was this is always great fun. And, uh, I you know, we talked for an hour. I could have easily done another hour, but uh, I won't subject you to that this time. I'll at least wait so, until Dark Phoenix comes out. If I could interject for a brief second. I'll be at C2E2 in Chicago this coming weekend and uh, in St. Louis the weekend after. So if anyone in those, that neck of the woods does have questions, uh, tell them, come on by. I love to answer. That's right. Well, we, yeah, you, always, always good to answer a question and always great uh, to have a chat. So thanks again, Chris Claremont. And as I said, you can find him at chrisclaremont.com. As for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Christian DMZ. And as you know, as you probably know, I have my own personal podcast, The Blatcast, B L A D T C A S T dot com. And uh, you can find some uh, past interviews I've had with Chris there. Uh, that's all the time we have for today, but we'll be back at our regular time, Sunday night at 9 Pacific, here on AfterBuzz TV. Until then, as the great Stanley would say, Excelsior! Our founder, Kevin Undergaro, and me, Maria Menunos, would like to thank you for tuning in to AfterBuzz TV. Remember, we're not just the first, we're the biggest in the world, and we're the only destination for all your favorite TV shows. Whatever you crave, we've got it. So go to AfterBuzzTV.com and check out our lineup. Buzz you later. <laughs> the views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.